Hello and welcome to another one of my podcasts in the series Understanding Mental Health, Conditions, Caring and Context. Today I'm going to be talking about genetic psychiatry. My name's Rab Houston. I'm Professor of Modern History in the University of St Andrews here in Scotland. Psychiatry has always had a bit of a problem. Mind doctors struggled for centuries to establish scientific credibility for their field, or even to develop an agreed set of categorizations, standard diagnoses and uniform therapies. That problem persists for two reasons. The first is, sadly, the long-standing association between mental illness and mental weakness, which treats mental problems as the result of a failure of character. There remains a stigma attached to mental illness which affects no other condition that I can think of. Even a disease that once attracted moral censure, such as alcohol abuse or one transmitted sexually, has come to be regarded as just another treatable pathology. Not so mental disorders, though this is thankfully changing. The second reason psychiatry has a problem, in my view, is the limited effect of scientific change on mental medicine, something which has distinguished psychiatry from other branches of medicine over the centuries is the absence of any major breakthroughs in scientific understandings of how the brain works. Mad doctors struggled because they got left behind when other fields of medicine developed greater scientific certainty, as happened during the 19th and even more the 20th century. That makes psychiatry a discipline whose development is marked less by scientific advances than by historical landmarks such as official inquiries government statutes and court cases, or the work of prominent practitioners, and I've dealt with some of these in my other podcast series. Nevertheless, science of a sort has periodically buttressed psychiatry over the centuries. The idea that good and bad aspects of mind and body alike can be passed down through the generations is far from new. Nearly 400 years ago, Robert Burton's 900-page Anatomy of Melancholy contained a subsection headed Parents a Cause by Propagation. Burton's interest was in melancholy, which was a much broader category of mental and physical disorder than it's since become. Another good example of a scientific interest or a scientific contribution to psychiatry is from the 19th century and it's what John Langton Down termed Mongol babies. The children with the characteristic skull formation and other physical anomalies he identified because he assumed that they were regressing to an earlier stage of human development. Down's identification of the syndrome was correct, but not his explanation. He came out of a theory called degeneration, and that theory, along with other 
features of the 19th century like craniometry and physiognomy, in other words, being the attempt to read people's characters from their face or from the structure of their skull, we now write off as nothing more than pseudoscience. A curious error, but an error nevertheless. Among the breakthroughs in this field in the distant past have been new understandings of some organic conditions, such as the early 20th century discovery that a condition called general paralysis of the insane, which was the cause of a third of admissions to British lunatic asylums around 1900, was caused by the presence of the spirochet bacteria, which caused syphilis. The availability of antibiotics like penicillin from the 1940s onwards transformed treatment of this condition. A similar buttressing of psychiatry by science happened during the psychopharmacological revolution that began in the mid-20th century. Though on this occasion it was much more constructive and much better based. Most recently we have had important breakthroughs in understanding the genetic basis of many conditions. You probably know that every cell in the human body contains 23 chromosomes and in the case of Down syndrome which I just mentioned the problem is caused by an extra copy of chromosome 21. By aligning itself with the mainstream traditions of scientific medicine, this modern biologization of madness has given psychiatry at least some of the credibility it has so often lacked. Now again, there are parallels in history. The biological paradigm which dominates much of modern psychiatry carries on the somatogenic one which dominated medicine for millennia. In other words, it's about the human body as a biochemical or biomechanical machine. Let me allow my guest to introduce himself and then we can move on to what I think you'll find is going to be a really fascinating discussion. Douglas Blackwood, a psychiatrist in Edinburgh University, based at the Royal Edinburgh Hospital, which is a psychiatric teaching hospital in Edinburgh. A main part of my job involves clinical work with patients in hospital and outpatient clinics, and we treat a wide range of mental disorders, but by far and away the most common in adults are schizophrenia, bipolar disorder and depression in their many forms. My research interests are in the genetics of these major mental illnesses, and I've been fortunate in being involved at the clinical end while also working beside molecular and clinical geneticists and colleagues in neuroscience in the university. This is part of a trend bringing psychiatry into mainstream scientific medicine. In psychiatry, I think we have much to learn from recent progress in understanding other common complex disorders such as diabetes, breast cancer, inflammatory disease, and indeed high blood pressure and height and weight the same methods can lead to um, similar underlying processes. How many people are likely to suffer from the serious mental illnesses you've described and which you see in your specialist clinical work 
here at the Royal Edinburgh Hospital in Morningside, Edinburgh. So the major mental illnesses are similar across countries and cultures, and they're very common. Schizophrenia and bipolar together may affect up to 1% of the population, and depression, depending on how it's measured, but let's say severe depression, may occur in up to 5% of the population. Less severe forms are, of course, much commoner. As with a number of those I'm interviewing for this series, Douglas, you blend clinical psychiatry with some cutting-edge research interests, giving you an unusual breadth and depth in your knowledge of psychiatric issues. From the molecular level through to real-life patients, and indeed to massive studies of whole populations, which I know you want to talk about. Some psychiatrists are sceptical about using the phrase mental illness because they feel it too vague. I notice that you use it as well as the other phrase mental disorder. Can I ask why? The reason I'm asking is because in the distant past the sorts of labels you use didn't exist. People were just mad, or they were what was unflatteringly described as idiots. And you say that the serious mental disorders are the same across the modern world. But people are so different, so how can we be sure? I'd like to comment on the problems of definitions and classifications of uh, mental disorders because this is such an important and central issue in biological psychiatry. Referring to schizophrenia and depression, I like to use the terms mental disorder or mental illness for two good reasons. First, I think it helps patients and relatives to realize that their distress and symptoms can be understood as an illness that can be treated and for which they may expect recovery. Secondly, to practice evidence-based medicine, we have to have an agreed set of rather precise definitions of what we're treating in order to compare results and make progress. At present, there are two rather similar classifications used. One is the World Health Organization, which publishes the International Classification of Disease, known as ICD. And in the US, they have the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM. Now, these are invaluable guidelines, and they provide lists of criteria to define separate disorders, so all psychiatrists can speak the same language. However, it's never been claimed or intended that ICD or DSM are some kind of final statement about illnesses. Rather, they're descriptions based on best available evidence, their work in progress, and open to change whenever new scientific evidence is available. And now there is growing evidence from genetics that the current classifications of major mental illness will indeed have to change in future. Highly likely we'll find better ways to group and subgroup common mental illness, and the broad categories like schizophrenia or depression will be further subgrouped into smaller groups of patients that perhaps respond well to one type of treatment and not to another, or may be susceptible to particular side effects. Okay, so modern scientific research is already feeding into changing understandings of how to categorise and therefore treat 
mental disorders. But what particular fields have made the greatest contribution to clinical practice? So the two big stories in psychiatry over the past few years has been genetics and brain imaging. We're also learning a lot of new insights from neuroscience about how the brain is structured and how it alters and matures from infancy to adulthood when major illnesses develop. That's where we are now, but understanding the genetic basis of psychiatric conditions has a much longer history, I think, albeit using more traditional methods. I'm thinking of twin studies which sought to separate the effects of inheritance from environment. Really got underway about 60 years ago with the early studies of twins. And these proved that there were indeed genetic risk factors that made some people more susceptible to develop schizophrenia than others. And then, more recently, population genetics gave way to the era of molecular genetics when it was discovered how to extract and analyse DNA from an individual. And now it's almost routine to analyse in great detail the DNA from hundreds of thousands of patients and to identify the small and subtle changes in DNA and the variation in DNA in people with a particular illness. And this will then lead, the genetic methods will lead on to understanding main issues in psychiatry, for example, the complex interplay between genes and environment, nature versus nurture, that shapes our beliefs and emotions and memories, indeed will shape our mental state, if you like, in illness and health. So, what is the contribution of psychiatric genetics in general? And on what specific conditions is it shedding new light and raising new possibilities? The claim is that many mental disorders have a biological basis and that some of the risk is inherited and that by examining DNA sequence data, we will be able to work out what goes wrong in disease and what happens to proteins at the cellular and molecular level. So what disorders are being looked at right now. The list is quite long. Depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, autism, anorexia, obsessive compulsive disorder, Tourette syndrome, tension deficit hyperactivity disorder, post-traumatic stress, and even substance use. What methodologies are you using, Douglas, and where exactly is your research and that of others leading us? So we're trying to find DNA variation, say mutations, associated with an illness and to use that information to look at how that alters the cell biology and brain function. And along the way to look for new drug targets and places for treatment interventions. This is saying that the best model to adopt to understand the biology of these psychiatric disorders is to put them on a par with, say, diabetes, breast cancer, hypertension, and indeed height and weight. It's not useful in this exercise to make a distinction, any distinction at all, between mind and body. Seeing mind and body together was quite normal for practitioners of mental medicine over past centuries. And it's interesting that you call for an integrated, holistic approach. But can I press you on how you assess the importance of nature 
versus nurture, of inheritance versus environment, and explaining the origins and experience, or, as clinicians put it, the presentation of mental disorders. For example, you mentioned twin studies earlier on. So what scientific evidence do we have for saying that genetic factors are at least partly responsible for schizophrenia? The first observation, and this was well recognised at the time by psychiatrists working in the large asylums of the 19th century, was that major mental disorders often run in families. But of course, this could be explained entirely as an effect of environment, in just the same way as tuberculosis and other infections tend to group in families living in poorer circumstances. So there are two main strategies used in genetic research to tease apart genetic from environmental effects. The first is twin studies. And the trick here is to compare identical twins with non-identical twins. This is because identical twins share the same DNA from their parents and they're brought up in the same environment at home. So if one identical twin has a genetic tray, the second twin is almost certain to have a similar condition. Uh, this is not the case with non-identical twins because they're just like any other siblings. They share about half of their DNA, but have very similar environment. So they are not as likely as identical twins to develop the same illnesses. We measure the similarity of twins as the twin concordance for a trait. So for a strongly heritable disorder, concordance will be greater in identical twins than in non-identical. For a disorder which has no heritable component, it's entirely due to environmental factors, the identical and non-identical twins will have the same concordance. So there have been many twin studies in schizophrenia and in autism and bipolar disorder and several other illnesses. And they've all been highly consistent in showing greater concordance amongst identical twins compared to non-identical. And this is a way of confirming and indeed quantifying genetic risk. A second strategy that's uh, quite difficult to do is adoption studies. Here you follow up children who've been adopted and brought up by adoptive parents, not their biological parents. They are found to carry genetic risk from their birth parents and the environmental risk from the adopted family has only a very small effect on whether the child develops schizophrenia or not. Twin studies are very important and they form the basis of a lot of the questions that scientists are asking nowadays. But in scientific terms, they are quite traditional based on clinical observation within defined populations. What's happened more recently particularly in the field of molecular genetics. So what has been discovered recently in uh, genome-wide association studies in psychiatry? Uh, the first point to make is that some of these studies are extremely large, involving hundreds of thousands of cases and controls, and very large numbers of researchers in psychiatric clinics and laboratories around the world. For example, members contributing to the Psychiatric Genomics Consortium include about 800 clinicians and scientists from 40 different countries and include valuable contributions from pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies 
And they, of course, are following up leads to look for drug targets and new treatment opportunities from the data. So what has been discovered by these impressively large collaborations? Well, in schizophrenia, the story is that 60,000 approximately people with schizophrenia have donated a DNA sample which has been analysed and 155 genes have been pinpointed from uh, depression it's even bigger, about 130,000 people with depression have donated DNA samples for research. These people are, have ranged from those with very mild depression with a, only a few symptoms like lack of sleep or poor appetite to uh, those people who've been so depressed they're admitted to hospital. And from this sample, 44 genes have been identified. And no doubt as the number of cases increases, as is planned at the moment, many more genes will come to light. There could be hundreds, even perhaps even thousands of genes still to find. And this is just the beginning. If you think about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, for example, about 20,000 individuals have given their DNA and 12 genes have been identified and are being further analysed. To give a final example from anorexia nervosa, here only a relatively small number of individuals have been entered into the study, about 3,500 individuals. One gene looks interesting, but a group of genes has also been identified which are already known to affect body weight and body metabolism. And these are very early days, but it's the results are intriguing and do suggest that anorexia, as well as being a psychiatric illness, has a biological underpinning linked to other disorders of body weight and, and body metabolism. These are huge populations, as you said earlier, Douglas. The other thing that strikes me is that the research has included conditions that are usually regarded by lay people like myself as primarily psychosocial in origin, including anorexia, which has a podcast to itself in this series. What are the exact clinical benefits that come out of this research? Finding genes can lead on to discovering more about the underlying disease itself, which could indeed lead to clinical benefits. For example, in schizophrenia, the genes which have been discovered, some of them are linked to dopamine and glutamate neurotransmission. And these, of course, are, are the targets of many drugs we use. And so we're going to find out more about current treatments and at the same time, hopefully, discover new targets and interventions. And similarly with depression, some of the genes that have been pinpointed in association studies are linked to neurotransmitters like serotonin, which are targets for current treatments. So these new genome-wide association studies, or GWAS for short, GWAS, search the genome for small variations called single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SMPs, which is pronounced SNPs, that occur more frequently in people with a particular disease than in people without that disease. 
Has there been feedback into how psychiatrists classify the sorts of conditions you're talking about here? The results of GWAS are also interesting because they contribute to the debate about current ways of classifying psychiatric disorders in ICD and DSM. It's highly likely that these classifications will need revision in the future. For example, from the genome-wide association studies, there is quite significant overlap in genetic risk for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, and we might, might be able to use this to define subgroups of these disorders more precisely and hence target treatments. For example, detecting people liable to develop adverse reactions to a particular drug or people who are likely to respond well to, say, lithium. The situation with depression is also interesting. The genetic data suggests extraordinary overlap of depression risk genes with genes implicated in anxiety, attention deficit hyperactivity, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, anorexia, and even smoking behavior. So there's a wealth of information available now to work on to redefine the boundaries of groups of depression. And hopefully this will, again, lead to more biologically based subgroups of people who are amenable to specific interventions and treatments. Again, this seems to point to the place of genetics and environmental influences in understanding issues that most people, myself included, would consider purely about upbringing and personality, what researchers call phenotypes. Those include different levels of resilience to specific types of adverse circumstances, such as fear or sadness. Another important result of the genome-wide association studies, the data, can be analysed to see how specific environments interact with particular genes. And the analysis can include studies that unravel the contributions of nature and nurture. For example, how different people react to stress and trauma. What are the factors relating to resilience and some and vulnerability to others? I think these are all questions which can be approached using the very, very large data sets which are now available of genetic and phenotype data. All this sounds fantastic, Douglas, and the potential truly huge. But what has it actually done for clinical practice in alleviating suffering today? We perhaps have good reason to be optimistic that genetic data collected so far is an advance in our understanding of mental illness. Perhaps you could uh, even agree with the authors of a recent paper in the American Journal of Psychiatry who were quite upbeat and suggesting that this is the start of a golden age of research into the fundamental basis of severe mental illness. However, we have to be quite realistic that it could be decades before these scientific discoveries are translated into useful interventions and treatments available and affordable to everybody. Nevertheless, we can see on the horizon some interesting new possibilities for treatment in mental illness. And it's not just genetic association studies that are interesting. There's other areas in neuroscience. For example, what we didn't know till fairly recently is that the process of new growth of brain cells, so-called neurogenesis, is a process that occurs in some parts of the brain throughout life. 
So brain stem cells may be another route to treatments and indeed are being tried to restore damage of the spinal cord. So tools are becoming available to restore function that's been damaged by disease. We try to restore function of the parts of the brain involved in emotion when we treat depression. We try and recover parts of the brain involved in belief systems when we treat delusions and psychosis or the memory of people with dementia. But in addition to restoring the function of damaged brain cells, the same interventions could be effective in, in enhancing function in otherwise normally working cells. Many fields in which the medical and biological sciences are advancing attract debate about ethics, including something as apparently value-free, such as the genetic modification of crops to enhance food supply and its quality, especially in areas of the world where agriculture is backward and where poverty is extensive. If it's true of agriculture, it must be true in spades for your field, Douglas. The use of these powerful procedures such as gene editing or replacing sections of damaged DNA is going to require quite careful regulation by society. And it's not just a matter between a doctor and a patient. A recent example of good science and wide consultation was when Parliament recently decided that in the special cases of so-called mitochondrial diseases, these are very quite rare but distressing illnesses where the child is severely affected from birth. And the disability can be avoided by using a procedure where in the embryo before implantation, the mother's mitochondrial DNA is replaced with mitochondrial DNA from a healthy female donor. So the child carries the nuclear DNA from the mother and father, but the tiny amount of mitochondrial DNA comes from a third person. These were tough ethical decisions, and they have to be faced, and in particular about gene editing, because it's now possible to edit DNA in such a way that specific mutations in a single gene can be targeted and corrected. So when is it ethical to edit a faulty gene? It seems likely that editing faulty genes causing, say, cancer could become a realistic option for treatment in some genetic disorders, provided the procedure is shown to be safe and effective. Somatic cell edits of this sort are not passed on to future generations, but will it ever be acceptable to edit a disease-causing gene in the germ cells? If that took place, the embryo avoids receiving a disease-causing mutation carried by the mother or father, but the edit is then passed down to all future generations. Another example, if we were to develop a genetic test that could accurately predict, say, depression or schizophrenia in adulthood, there isn't any such test at the moment. But if we did, would parents have the choice to use predictive genetic tests to select an embryo free from what they considered undesirable traits? The process for making these decisions has to be based first on very clear and sound scientific data to show that the treatment is both effective and safe. Decisions then have to involve not only scientists, doctors and patient groups, but much more widely bringing in faith communities and politicians 
so that genetic advances can be translated into treatments that are available to everybody seeking help for illness. I think we can be confident that we can carry out these exercises um, in, in ethics and in, in, in deciding what's possible and what's not possible with the uh, new genetic discoveries. Douglas, that was fascinating and thought-provoking. It shows, apart from anything else, how scientific knowledge is not detached from society or politics. Reception of all the developments you've outlined are likely to vary from country to country, over time, and even between different social, ethnic or religious groups. Understanding diversity and change is what history does so well. And I just hope my podcasts have made at least a small contribution to informing debates about scientific, health, ethical and political choices. Thank you again, Douglas.